Hello and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and all kinds of other podcasting platforms, uh, and on YouTube with video. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show this week. We are going to do a knockdown, drag them out uh, interview here this week with a survivor of a group that is related directly to Scientology. And this is a real opportunity for me because uh, this is the first time I've had a guest on who has been downstream of Scientology. And by that, I mean ideas are evolving things and cults and groups and, and, and I don't know, spirituality. I mean, I've had guests on, Joe Zimhart most specifically, who has broken down the history of spiritual movements and the concept of ascended masters and and you know and theosophy and 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 spiritualism and this stuff goes back to turn of the century you know 18 1900s and even earlier i mean it really goes back a long way this tradition or this idea of of being a spiritual being you know living life after life and um and ascending in levels of spiritual awareness and ability. This is something that is promised by lots and lots of groups through history. And there have been many, probably thousands of systems developed by individuals or groups to try to raise consciousness, raise awareness, make us all better people, you know, and uh, let us achieve our true spiritual potentials. So if you hear a little bit of, you know, sarcasm in my voice, it's because I've now been not only through the mill of Scientology for decades of my life, but have studied and looked into lots and lots of these groups and the history of them. And it's the same story over and over and over again when you get down to the human level. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's people who, who get really interesting and kind of bizarre ideas about, you know, our true nature and decide to form these groups and, uh, and almost inevitably, you know, I don't say inevitably, but I say almost inevitably based on history. We see these groups devolve into destructive cults. They, they, they might have high-minded goals at the beginning, or they might not. They might be scams from the very beginning. I, I think Scientology was. But yet you also have these elements of sincerity and, and true belief on the part of the founders and the followers. So this week, I welcome Ariella Sarai. And uh, hi, Ariella. Welcome to my show. Hi, Chris. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being patient while I do that whole intro there. I'm very happy to have you on. And um, this is going to be interesting because you were part of a group, and just kind of continuing my little, my little intro there, you were part of a group that basically came from Scientology. But it's not Scientology. It's a different thing. You were part of a group called Avatar, yeah? Right. Okay, so now I'm going to let you talk. So why don't you introduce yourself and and let us know first off, maybe you know a little bit of background about yourself and how you got involved with this group, or what the backstory is that you feel is necessary to to sort of set the stage for us on this. Okay, so I grew up in Princeton, New Jersey, in a wonderful family, and um, I was always interested in helping people. I became a psychotherapist. 
Um, I traveled to India studying Buddhism, working with Mother Teresa. I've always had a passion for helping people and understanding how the human mind works. Wow. And, and if, yeah. if I can interrupt you for just a second, you work directly with the living Mother Teresa. Yes. When she was still alive, I went to Calcutta. Wow. And I volunteered there in Calcutta in two of her different homes and went to her prayers, services every evening and lived there for quite a while. And then I also went to the north of India and studied um, Tibetan Buddhism and met the Dalai Lama and lived there and studied that. I mean, I'm interested in a lot of things. Well, that's good. We like interest in a lot of things. <laughs> and, yeah. and that's a good thing. Um, I just have to ask, because I know it's not the main topic of what we're doing here, but since you brought up Mother Teresa, I have seen and heard um, uh, Christopher Hitchens' work on, on Mother Teresa, and he did not really have a lot of very nice things to say about her. While she is, you know, this sort of sainted individual in the Catholic world, as I understand it, um, was she what she was cracked up to be or was it something darker? Well, I only met her briefly. Okay. So I was in her presence, but she never led any groups or anything that I was in. Okay. Well, what I can say is that the, the nuns were very sincere in their desire to help others. And so was Mother Teresa from my experience, but there was also an element of harshness, even in that system where, like for example, um, she believed that the nuns should live like the people they're serving. So they didn't have hot water. They got food that was donated. They didn't know where their next meal was necessarily going to come from. They slept on the floor, just like the people they were serving. So there was that type of culture, which now looking back, I, you know, I, I don't feel a hundred percent about because there's a, definitely a lot of um, sacrifice on the part of the people who are contributing to that system. Yeah, it seems a little bit weird. And also my first impression of that. As a, as someone who one has helped people who are destitute or in you know in, in, in difficult times, not not in India, mind you, I didn't I didn't go there, um, so I know it's a whole nother level there, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but it seems to me that it's a little artificial. It seems a little fake somehow, you know. This idea that I'm going to I can walk away from this at any time and go live a much better life, but I'm gonna I'm gonna you know live the way these people live because. I need to, I don't know, I'm not quite sure what the motivation is on that. I think you can offer sincere, mm. well-founded and, and effective help to people without, you know, prostating yourself or making yourself out to be something. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I think that to me, the nuns themselves and Mother Teresa, there was a sincerity there that I felt. Sure. I feel like from her perspective and from their culture that living like the poor was the right thing to do somehow. They saw it that way. Okay. And me as a volunteer, I wasn't required to do that. So I went back to my little hotel and had my own little life, you know, and then showed up in the morning and volunteered and went to their mass and things like that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, 
definitely just an interesting structure looking back now from my perspective now after my experience with Avatar. I'll bet. I'll bet. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll we'll roll on from that because, like I said, it's not the main theme. Yeah. Of me, but I was just I was curious. I mean, I don't run into that many people who have literally been in the same room with Mother Teresa, so yeah. I had to yeah. ask. <laughs> mm-hmm. So okay, well, this is interesting. You've had an interesting background there. Do you also mentioned psychotherapy? Yes. So I was a therapist for several years before taking the Avatar course. And I loved what I was doing. I worked in hospitals, a hospice. I worked in prisons, group homes, foster, foster homes. Wow. And I had a private practice. And I worked with individuals who really wanted to grow further. And they were into personal development. But there was always something more I was looking for. Mm. What was that? How did that, how'd that work for you, you were, I mean, practicing psychotherapist, that's a lot of schooling. That's a lot of work and yeah. a lot of investment. I mean, I now know like it's a lot. You know? Yes, it so, is. Yeah. So what was, what was left, what was lacking for you in that? I think there was a, a level that I felt that I wasn't fulfilled. I was always looking to, first of all, belong to something where I felt like I was around like-minded people. I think a lot of people feel kind of different from their peers. So in Princeton, there was a um, kind of a, I, I felt like I didn't totally fit in. I mean, for example, I had a back brace and braces for five years. So I always felt a little awkward, a little left out. And then I would look at these people that were totally put together and they were, you know, on, on popular and all on these varsity teams and things you know how it goes in high school and and I you know I just kind of had this feeling like that's not really me I don't really fit in there where do I fit in there's something deeper in life for me something more meaningful I didn't know what it was but that's why I went to India to volunteer and that's why I studied Buddhism and I worked with other people because I was searching for something more. And now looking back, I really feel that it was fulfillment that I was looking for. And it's um, kind of interesting how off track I got in looking for that fulfillment. <laughs> Tell me about yeah. it, right? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, I hear you on that. Did you get into um, uh, meditation or uh, other than Mother Teresa in India, you know, I, I understand gurus are a dime a dozen there in some areas. What yeah. Was there any sort of pull in that direction? Yes, I studied meditation and particularly Tibetan Buddhism fascinated mm. me because I loved their education. They talked a lot about the balance of compassion and wisdom. So I had different teachers and also in Tibetan Buddhism, I didn't feel like they were trying to get me to worship a guru or anything, which I liked. So I felt free to study as much as I wanted to meditate, choose the practices that I liked. And so I, I really enjoyed that. But even though I got a lot from all of that, inside myself, I was still not fulfilled. And also there was some sadness, some emotions, something that was kind of unintegrated, which again, a lot of people experience, but something that I I never really knew how to 
deal with my negative emotions and be real and be totally present. So it's like I had something in me that I was looking to heal, Mm. which is why when my best friend at the time invited me to the avatar course. So I had just gotten divorced Mm -hmm. and I had a three-year-old boy and I had him full-time except for every other weekend. So I was for the most part, a single mom. And I was having a hard time making that transition. Yeah. Now I hope hope everybody out there is paying attention because this is, this is actually important, right? Traumatic life experience, recent change, worry, upset. And then a friend (laughs) comes with a potential solution to this problem. So we have two elements here that we've harped on so many times in other episodes and other other talks about how people are susceptible to falling into a belief set that might not be good for them. Exactly. So then it's classic, right? So then my friend tells me, and she, she was also a therapist, and her husband was a psychiatrist, and she said they both did the course, and that it was so amazing. <laughs> I, I really hope everybody's getting that they're, that it, it's not your intelligence that's going to stop this from happening to you, you know? <laughs> Here are three clearly intelligent people. Now, now obviously, we're, we're saying now, we're kind of spoiling that this does not have a happy ending <laughs> as, far as, as far as this avatar group goes. It's not a good experience, but... Uh, I think everybody who's listening is kind of knows where we're going with this because this is, you know, this is cult stuff. So exactly uh, right. I have two Ivy League degrees. Uh, my friend had also one, and that we, we were all highly educated and, um, you know, p- successful people. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So you're not failures. You're not bums. You're not destitute. You're not, you know, out on the street. You're not. Um, morally corrupt. You are not, you know, you, you're not ruined by religion. It, 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 none of those things are there. And yet mm-hmm. here it is, right? That's so, right. Yes. Please continue. Okay. So I got invited to do this course. And so I, I took the avatar course and it was nine days and it was actually an incredible experience. So my best friend came with me and watched her boy and my boy, we were both single moms. And I went up to New Hampshire and I took the course. And I can't believe how much I got from that first level course. I mean, I let go of this pain I was carrying around. I met people that I felt were so like-minded. Everybody seemed so present, calm and caring. They gave me a lot of attention. I know you're checking all the boxes right now. <laughs> right. Well, so me, I got it. Yeah. Let me ask you a couple of questions because I'm I, I'm just riddled with curiosity here. So you go up to New Hampshire. Is this an is this a a brick and mortar rented out place or is this just a temporary seminar deal? Nine days. That's a long time to do a first service. What 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 happened? Yeah. So um, it. All the avatar courses are at hotels. There's no, there's no location, central location. There's a headquarters, but it's just an office, and that's in Orlando. Okay. And a lot of the larger courses, the international courses, are held 
in Orlando. I mean, they haven't been since COVID, but traditionally. So Avatar is taught all over the world. It's taught in over 70 countries and to, there's over 100,000 people have taken the course and tens of thousands of people who are teaching. They're called licensed masters. And then, so some of the courses are international where you can have two to 4,000 people in a room. And then there are some smaller courses, which we called cooperative courses, which were done locally in hotels and in, in smaller hotels. So I drove from Massachusetts. I was living in Williamsburg, Massachusetts at that time. I drove to New Hampshire because that was the closest one for me. And I did a small course. Okay. Got it. And, uh, and it and that took, that was a nine day affair. So that was, a, that was a little bit of an investment. I mean, nine days in the hotel and then the course, how much was the course? The course is $2,295. Wow. So your friend must have really done a good job selling it to you. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yep. And it, and then plus hotel, plus travel, plus food, plus all of that. Exactly. That was a little bit yeah. of an investment. Did, uh, how many people were there doing the course with you? About 30, 30 or so is what I remember. It was quite small. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. But that's at, tw- at 2,200 each. That's, you know, just pure profit of o- over 60,000 or just well, that small group. Yeah. And the way it works, the way Avatar works is that once you become a licensed master, you bring your own students. So each master gets paid by their student and they pay a small amount of royalties to the company. That's for level one. It changes for the upper three levels. There's a totally different structure. So the masters were there with their students and were getting paid most of that $2,295, not all of it. Wow. Interesting. Okay. So Mm -hmm. it very, very heavily incentivizes these masters to get and bring their people and, and retain them and keep them going on this thing. Exactly. And then there's a lot of pressure, as you can imagine, to go to level two. And then level two, the avatar, Star's Edge, that's the company, gets paid for oh. that. Okay. So that's where they start to make their uh, money. Yeah, that's where they make the big money. Yeah. But, they st- but they're not starting small. It's interesting because just in terms of compare contrast with Scientology, let's say, for mm-hmm. example, right? It's not a $50 course that you can just go into their brick and mortar place and do. It's you know, it's all these special arrangements. It's interesting. Well, um, one, one thing I want to say is that they do break it down. So the first mm-hmm. level is nine days, but you have a choice. You can do a weekend workshop for two ninety five. Oh, and you okay. can break it down into section two, which is 500. And then section three is 1500, or you can do it all. So very often people came in on the first level of the two ninety five, right. and then were enticed to stay for the next part and the next part. And by the time you do it all, you're at 2,295. Okay. That makes a lot more sense to me yeah. Um, yeah. in terms of a, a, you know, a gradient scale approach too. Yeah. I just went for the whole thing because I trusted my friend and I was uh, looking for something at that time. Absolutely. And not unheard of in Scientology either. I have literally seen people come in and plop down five, $10,000 on their day one. Mm-hmm. Rare, very rare. But a situation like that where, you know, a good friend or family member was was uh, really working them over for a while to, to convince them to do it. So, yeah. so please continue. 
All right. So what do you want to know next? Well, okay. So you went and did these services. Now, what was the nine day? I mean, what you, what you said you got a lot out of it. And I believe you because it, they tend to pack at the lowest level. That's the intro. That's the, that's the get me. That's the like, they got to hook you. So they're going to have to do something for you that's going to be meaningful and, and substantives for some reason to you. Mm-hmm. What was it that they did for you or what, what, what happened that you thought there's something here? Well, I learned how to understand and process through all the emotions I was feeling. Mm. So it was that happen. Well, they have these tools that they teach you how to feel, how to let go of old creations, how to understand what they are, like what beliefs have been creating those creations. And, and then I learned also how to create new beliefs that would create a new reality. So it would be like, you know, we call them primaries. So you would decide something that you want to create and you, you would learn how a tool to manifest that and clear out anything that was in the way of manifesting that new reality. Interesting. Okay. So we're talking about stresses or um, chronic worries you might have or emotional responses you might have that you feel or a negative response or something you don't really want to feel that way anymore. And so you were sort of resorting causative elements of that or how did that? Exactly. The causative elements and also as well, just the the emotions themselves for me was, they were so challenging because I would, everything would stick on me. So I learned how to actually move through these emotions and let them go, which was an incredible relief and understand um, how I was creating them, how to stop creating them, how to actually feel happy and present and then there was the element of creating what you want. So they call that part discreating, which is letting go of what you don't want. And then creating is focusing on what you do want, like a healthy relationship or more money or whatever that is. It was, it was very exciting because I felt like I was learning tools to manage my own mind and run my life. Right. I totally get that. How did you, or what, during the time that this was happening, is what, I'm, is what I'm most curious about right now, you know, you go into this with a full psychotherapy education. So how did that knowledge and experience from your counseling um, inform what you were learning? Did you, I mean, did you treat them as completely separate things and not, not work on integrating the knowledge or was it, or was it, were you able to connect dots between these things? Yeah, that is such a great question. Cause that was the beginning of the invalidation of everything that was important to me. Because when I got there and they found out that I was a therapist, oh, wow. That therapy, I mean, they just made fun of that, like you can only imagine. And, you know, there there was a lot of um, invalidation of being a therapist and even mocking of if I would say something, oh, well, that sounds like a therapist. And what I found, the tools 
initially felt so effective. And then they were telling me that this is like, like therapy is like the dinosaur mm-hmm. compared to what we have now. So I just dropped all of that very quickly, mm-hmm. which is, you know, part of the issue. And I didn't, I didn't integrate the two. I didn't keep that therapist hat on. And I just went personally into this belief system and went with the idea that I had now found really the gold I was looking for. Got it. Okay, got mm-hmm. it. Well, now let me ask you then, um, because, you know, this was, wh- what year was this? When was this that this happened? 2000. 2000. Okay. So. Yep. yep. I was there 21 years. Okay. Got it. Totally got it. Um, and yeah, that's a long time. I know. That's a long I that, time. I know what that feels like. Yeah. I hear you. <laughs> um, but looking back now on that first experience and you have stressed the emotional component because they were clearly, you know, trying to create an emotional you know, change, right? Yeah. Um, and that's interesting to me because, of course, that's, you know, what it's all about is, is creating emotional moments. Um, yeah. How do you see it, though? Because that's how I see it. But how do you look back on and see what was done during that initial uh, entry into this, into this world of Avatar? Well, I think looking back now after leaving... Yeah. So not until recently, because after I left, I, of course, I had a whole different perspective on anything, on everything. Now, looking back, I feel like it was an incredibly um, amazing seeding, like planting seeds mm. to, be able, to be able to influence me moving forward, which is exactly what happened. Right. So first they get you to invalidate or as part of the process, they're heavily invalidating and getting you away from thinking with external ideas. Mm -hmm. They want you in this mindset and then they produce positive emotional effects that reinforce why that's a good thing to do. That's exactly right. And so that combination is very attractive. Right. 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 And very enticing. And mm-hmm. then there's the element. Another thing that really drew me in is they have this whole thing. I mean, I've heard your, a lot of your podcasts and this is the same thing as Scientology. Okay. We are saving the planet. Oh, they started hitting you that early on. Oh, we're creating an enlightened planetary civilization. That's the trademark. Right. And you get to be part of this by doing your own internal work and being with the, these amazing people that seem so like, like-minded. And of course, they're telling you that you can make money doing it. You know, and I saw that the course was 2295 and I thought, wow, sure, you get students, you get paid. Like, this is really heaven. I'm, this is like amazing. And then... The dangerous part to me, looking back, is they start to tell you what should be most important to you. And I have learned that this is, this is really where things start to go south because they say, just like you said in your videos, 
This is the most important thing you can do for your spiritual growth, for your happiness. This is your purpose. Family, money, everything else will fall into place, but it pales in comparison to this. See how good you feel? Don't you want everybody to feel this way? Right. There we go. So all of a sudden it bumped up in importance and everything else that I had worked really hard for that was important to me started to lower in importance. Exactly. There we go. Start resorting things. So, okay. So, so you get this fantastic experience reinforced by, I'm assuming reinforced by your best friend who's there pushing and yes, absolutely. Isn't this wonderful? Isn't this great? Reinforcing all the, all the hits and well, actually, she got pregnant and couldn't fly, so she referred me to another master. So, uh, oh, okay. She okay. was—I knew she was encouraging, but I—I I met these other masters who I connected with, and that's all, that's all I needed because everybody was very, very encouraging. Yes, I'll bet they were. That's <laughs> uh, that's definitely part of it. In fact, I I have to laugh because when you go to the um. When you go to the uh, Avatar Course website, which I'm on right now, there's a uh, option here to find a master. And I just kind of look at language like that very differently now. Maybe, yeah. maybe some people listening to this don't think that's like really that, like whatever, but I don't need a master. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well said. Well said. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of funny, you know, um, but it appeals to a certain mindset. I know it does. I know, mm -hmm. I know for sure it does. So, uh, so what was the next step then? Because they get you at the, you know, okay, so you're level one now. Is that what the end product of this thing is, is, is you get that? Yeah. That's called the avatar course, section one, two, and three. That would be called the avatar course. Section one, yeah. two, and three, huh? Just yeah. the OT levels. <laughs> the, OT people, the, the OT levels are actually in Scientology referred to as the Section 1 OT course. Wow. And section 2 OT course. So uh, anyway, just more, you know, whatever. Parallels. Yeah. yeah. I'm just going to note those as we go because I'm, I'm like that. But what so level one and what was like if you had walked away at that point was there a was there a sort of a um ability gained or this is now your the, the you know how we're going to describe your new state of existence yeah there was but at the same time toward the end they started telling me that i needed the next level mm -hmm. that Right. So that what I was getting was really great. But then I would go back into the world and it would be the shock because level two teaches you how to kind of interface with the world and be around others. And you're so in such a positive place, but everybody else is negative and you really don't want to crash yourself. Right. Like you can't do that. Right. So and then also it was interesting because you don't take home the tools with the avatar course. You leave empty handed. So it's just by memory and there's a lot of repetition. So you do remember some, but you, you don't take them home. So then you're told that if you go to the next level, not only do you get that whole new level and how to deal with other people, but you get all the avatar tools and the master's tools. That's called the master's course. So, you know, you feel very 
very much like you need to go. I felt very much like, like I, I got to get there. Right. Right. Well, and mm-hmm. of course, cause that's being cultivated. Right. Um, what sorts of, um, I'm going to ask you like, what kind of principles do you recall from that first level that were emphasized or were the important things you were supposed to remember and walk away with? What kind of things would we, would we be talking about? Well, they called it being source. So I, is that familiar? Yeah. L. Ron Hubbard is source in Scientology. Yeah. So. Oh, (laughs) okay. (laughs) Literally, capital S. Source. He is source, right? So. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Okay. So we're, uh, so being source meant that your source of your reality, that it was looking back, I would say extreme personal responsibility. And certainly as you got up the line, crazy extreme, um, what they call personal responsibility, which didn't take into account context whatsoever. What? So no context. Right. So, uh, and that caused a lot of the damage to myself and others, but um, in the beginning, so it was about being sore. So you felt really, I felt really excited, like, okay, I'm going to really control my life here. And, and they called it living deliberately. So how to, how to live intentionally and also being present was something that was really important being the creator of your reality, controlling your attention, mm-hmm. like knowing how to manage your attention and not having your mind go all over the place. Those were the principles. Um, they also talked about integrity, mm-hmm. like being honest was so important. Um, yeah, but those are the basic ones. Also, they talked about compassion and all these things that they talked about, I later found out they didn't live by them, to be totally honest. What? <laughs> Big surprise. What? There, was a, there was a huge gap. But those were principles that I very much related to. And I liked the sound of them. And I wanted to live by them. So those are other things that drew me in. That makes complete sense. And you and everything you just said, again, checks boxes for me with, with um, very important Scientology principles. So, um, so let's be clear that I'm not looking for just any little comma that's the same between these things. We already know one derives from the other. That's not really a question. It's, but it, but I am curious and interested in what parts did he choose to draw from and why. And and so far, you're breaking down just in what you've said. You're breaking down all the most popular parts of entry level Scientology. So it's no surprise wow. to me at all that these wow. were the things that were stressed: integrity, wow. honesty, compassion, being present. What we would now call mindfulness, but in Scientology is called being in present time. Yep. This is very important principle and very, very popular. Yep. Um, right. We before mindfulness was even a word. I mean, this was this was a thing in Scientology, right? Um, yes. and drills and practical exercises you can do in order to be more in present time. A lot of Scientology is directed in that direction. We call them drills. This is in level two. Level yep. two, you start to get the drills. That's and right. in, in level one, you have the rundowns, which I know is also in <laughs> That's right. Scientology, yep. right? Yep. 
Um, right. Is yeah. I mean, there's so many similarities, right? Well, and, and I'm very curious where it's going to go because, you know, you and I have spoken very little just to let the audience know we didn't do a lot of prep or planning on this thing. Right. Cause mm-hmm. I wanted to be surprised and kind of let this thing roll organically. But these popularity points you're hitting are just too, you know, they're just, they're just too obvious. Um, I'm curious if it's a confession culture. Is there, is that, does that come along uh, on the levels? Yeah. So as you get further up, so I took the level two, which is called the master's course. And that's where you learn that tool, which you just described in one of your podcasts. Um, I think you called it TRs, right? Oh, training routines. Yeah. The, the sit and do the communication drills. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So we were doing all those, you know, as I don't know if they're exactly the same, but it is, it's so similar to what you described where, yeah, you are practicing with someone sitting across from you and you're practicing the tool and they're working on make, you know, doing little things to help you stay on track and try to get you off track, but you, you're supposed to stay on track with your focus and your, and the tool um, of being present with the other person. Okay, got it. And that type of thing. Right, right. Let me quickly describe this for people because um, okay. you, you're, you're great. What you just said was wonderful. And just to set the stage for people, because if, if you really have no idea what we're talking about, it, a lot of these groups will develop not just belief sets or books for you to read, but they will do drills and practical exercises like meditation. You could consider that a drill or an exercise, something you're doing. Um, this goes way beyond meditation though. Um, and in Scientology, there are many, there's hundreds of different drills and and exercises you can do to learn different skills or practice things. And a very formalized set of drills that are done in Scientology are called the training routines or the TRs. And these are meant to teach communication skills. And to a degree they do, but there's way better courses you can take outside of Scientology or go do a Toastmasters and just practice public speaking. And you'll learn this stuff through experience too. So I'm not trying to sing Scientology's praises when I talk about this, but I will say that it does help people. It does. It's entry-level stuff. And some people, you know, could could use a little boost in their ability to, t- to look at other people when they're talking to them mm-hmm. or not necessarily be triggered by every single thing somebody says to you. That's mm-hmm. a valuable skill to have in certain situations. Yeah. It can go too far like anything, and you can use it to suppress emotion and suppress natural responses, and that can become difficult and problematic. So so any of this stuff is, you know, it can be taken to an extreme level, and that's what these, that's what these groups tend to do. For example, sitting down for a, for a couple minutes with someone that you're upset with or not, just anybody, and, and just looking at them for a little while can be a little drill, can be a little exercise. It can be a little fun thing to do, you know, and you kind of become a little more comfortable with them. They become a little more comfortable with you, you know, and everything's fine and you feel a little bit better. Now do it for two straight days and mm-hmm. maybe you might have some psychological issues <laughs> because you've been forced into a trance state for hours at a time. Mm-hmm. Totally different thing, right? So, so, this is, uh, so this is how this stuff is, is done. And, in, and these particular drills are done in a couple chairs sitting across from one another about three feet apart and just basically talking to one another or, or, or interacting in some fashion. That's what it looks like. So yeah. I just wanted to give that to the audience who has no idea what these, these TRs are about. 
Interesting. Very similar. And then also, let's just speak to the the confidentiality. The reason why I had that moment is in Avatar, all the tools are confidential. Wow. So you're not, aside from the first weekend, which is a book that's available to the public, you're not allowed to share any of the tools with anybody. And so, and I did sign a license saying that even if I left, I would still be accountable to that. Now, I'm not looking to get in any legal trouble or expose the tools. I'm not here to expose or take down anybody. I'm here to share the truth of my experience so people can learn from it. Perfect. And exactly right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, that's I it. the it's critical it. side of breaking it all down, but that's yeah, great. <laughs> I go for it. I love that. That's fine. But, uh, you know, so together we're going to really, it's, it's going to be very interesting. So, and it gets incredibly interesting. So back to your question about the confession culture. Yeah. So I went right to the next course. I did the very next one and I'm kind of going to take a little bit of a long, long-winded answer because I've got to set the stage for this. So that was when I started to notice what I now call my micro compromises of integrity. I like that phrase. Yes. This is a very this is a very common strategy when you look at it through that lens. It's like I didn't want to go that soon. I think it was about three weeks. I can't remember exactly. It was 21 years ago, but it was pretty quick. And I had a, a three-year-old, right? And so I had to get everything together. The next level is $3,000. That's on the heels of the 2300 20, that I just paid. And then, of course, I had to fly to Orlando, and there was hotel and my son, which meant babysitting. And it was a lot. But I overrode that feeling inside me that said, maybe just wait a minute. Um, because of the encouragement and because I thought this would be so amazing, the gains would be worth it. And then when I was taking the course, the hours were very long, extremely long, like 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. on the course and focused the entire time for another nine days straight. And I'm juggling with, you know, my son being in babysitting and just it was a lot of hours. Yeah, and so, wonderful. yeah, and then there was the financial compromise. So th- that's where it started, where I started training myself to feel that it was okay to override my intuition that was saying, this doesn't feel right, because that meant I'm stretching or growing and I'm evolving and this is good for me. Right. And then I just kept going down that path. So then what happened is, I was invited to start teaching and I, you know, you feel really honored, like, Oh, wow. I could teach this. That's so cool. I could help someone. So I went to the next course and I didn't have a level, level three now. Well, that's called an internship when you start teaching. Oh, okay. Okay. So you did the level two and then you do mm-hmm. the internship. Like a, and is- you can intern or you can go to level three. Level three and four happen once a year only. Oh, okay. So if you hit it right, if you start in September, then you can go to all four in a row. But there might be an internship in between there or there might be an internship after, but you can do an internship anytime after you do your level two, which is your master's course, if you get your license. Okay. And then your the internship is interning to become a master? Well, you can bring students 
and the students can pay you and you get the support of the team. So you go to this hotel room and you may have, like I said, could be 150 people, could be 2,000, 4,000 people from around the world, masters with their students. And then there are different levels of people that are teaching of the masters so that you're getting support from many levels up. So if you're a new intern bringing your student, you have the support of people with a lot more experience helping you. Mm. And the hours of the internship are very long. They're 7 a.m. till 9 p.m. with a very short lunch break. And so you're on all day. Again, this for the internship, it's 10 days because you have a preparation day, right? So I just kept going and going and pushing myself. And you also pay to teach. So if you don't have a student, <laughs> if you don't have a student, you about... If you have one student, you break even. If you don't have a student, you are putting out good money to go and teach this course. Right. And they, you know, the culture is such that like, you know, you need to keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back. Now that's interesting. How does that work? The, the keep coming back thing? What is, wh how do they do that? Well, they just keep telling you that this is the most important thing. This is for your enlightenment. You're saving the planet. It's the same thing. Everything will fall into place. And so there's a tremendous pressure to keep coming back. And when you keep coming back, is that to do the next level or to rehash the levels you've already done as a as it's a intern both. or both? both. Yep. It's both. both. It's it's basically they wanted you on every course. Right. Okay. So was a rehash, whether you were bringing students, whether you didn't have students, whether it was your first time doing a next level, just keep coming back was the culture. Got it. That makes sense. And of course, paying for the privilege of doing so. Absolutely. Now to the confession. So yeah. here's where it got really, really intense. I, I really was drawn to the work. Mm -hmm. And I loved it. And I started to create students. And in fact, I became somebody that they called a big producer. So I created a lot of students and I rose up the ranks in Avatar pretty quickly. Like mm -hmm. I just kept being more and more committed. Mm -hmm. And what I discovered is that as you go up the ranks, it becomes incredibly what I consider emotionally abusive. Mm. And the higher up I went, it got so extreme that I was experiencing public humiliation with these confessions mm. on a daily basis. So this idea of personal responsibility was twisted so that everything good that happened was a result of the course materials and everything that wasn't going well was because of you and any criticism you had. I mean, anything you needed to own as a transgression against Avatar, that you had done something. I know this is familiar, right? This is classic. I mean, yep. And we had to, I had to find what did I own? What did I do? And I was always told, you know, things like I'm selfish and I'm, out of alignment and all these things. And, and then I had these quotas of, of students that I said I would try to bring. Now, I, 
I was the one that initiated like how many I'd like to bring, Mm -hmm. but there was no chance to create students because I was so busy. I was working 15 hour days. By the time I got up the ranks, I was on course for two weeks out of every month and working 15, 16 hour days, getting home and expected to, in a very short time, create students at a high ticket rate. And if I didn't, I would just be so humiliated and, and in front of all my peers with a microphone while they were typing what I was saying, be forced to confess things that I supposedly did that I didn't do. And I was also told a lot like that I was doing this or I was a certain way or I, I had this intention. And if I ever didn't agree with it, that was a whole nother transgression. So I was very, I was very often shut up and told to just own and confess. And I lived like that for many, many, many years. Wow. Mm-hmm. Now I'm curious about so many things. I mean, I, I mm-hmm. first off, of course, let me say I get it and I get how awful it is. Mm-hmm. Um, like I really do. Um, because is there a, I mean, I know we, I'm not going to get into the specifics of technique here and all that, but I am curious culturally, is there a reporting system? Is it a snitch culture with? with 100%. Okay. And I'll tell you what mm-hmm. saved my life is there was a couple of people who I could rely on not to snitch. Right. And I snitched sometimes, like we all did sometimes. But there were those people in those moments, those human moments. And I'll tell you, all, the, all of those people are out, Chris. Good. Good. They're the ones that, it's like you maintain a little bit of your humanity. But I, I, I will say that I snitched many times because you think, you don't think you're snitching. You think you are saving that person's soul. So everything was reported, every single thing. Every single thing had to be aligned. If I wanted to go kayaking with my boyfriend on a Sunday afternoon, which I did one time, instead of being on the phone calling for the next course, right? I got in such trouble because I, and then I I actually acted like I was trying to inspire him to the next course. It was a new boyfriend at the time. Now, now we live together. Um, and that, that's what I was doing. And then it was obvious that that really wasn't it. And I had to admit this whole thing in front of my whole team, but I mean, everything, you you couldn't go to a movie without aligning it. That's at the level that I was. So when you start out, it's not like that. And it's very, it's a gradient approach, but it is a confession and reporting culture and they normalize it step by step step right and that's and that's the trick it's the it's the boiling it's the frog in the boiling water trick and it's and it is a classic and it's classic because it works let's be clear that you guys you know who we've lived through this we're sharing our experiences with the audience at large and i for one want to be clear about this because i think i've i feel it's necessary um this isn't you know th- this isn't a thing of 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 we put this out because we think um it's entertaining <laughs> we're 
we're, we're, we're trying to put this information out there to warn people that when you're in a situation that you don't fully understand, things can happen to you that you don't, that you don't see coming. You, you don't, you don't know where it's going. And, and there, there are always these red flags and these, and this, and this, and having a snitch culture of any kind being made to report on other people around you for their moral transgressions to some higher authority figure. You, you know, you better be sure you're part of a group that, that is actually doing what you think it's doing because these are totalitarian tools. These are not tools of freedom and happiness and joy. You know, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And this might be a good moment for me to just add some of the some of the insights I got about what we can do to prevent this. And I know it's a combination, of course, like I love your show because you are educating people on these tactics, among other things. You're teaching people how to think clearly, critically and recognize the signs that is so important. Mm -hmm. The part that I am most fascinated by is what about within ourselves? How did I allow such a level of denial that I would leave my son over and over, even when he needed me? I kept leaving my husband until we got divorced. I, at the end of the year, would end up in debt after devoting half my life to this, I always had the phone on. And there came a point where I saw no way out because I really thought that I had no other skills, which is not true, you know, and that I would just be stuck in what they called the lower modes and my life would fall apart and it would be the biggest transgression if I ever left. It was exactly the opposite, by the way, for anyone who's thinking of leaving. It was the greatest moment of my entire life. Um, and my life is more wonderful than it's ever been. But um, what, I, what I learned is that I tuned out my emotions and I dismissed my own inner voice. And I let the voice of that authority I gave my loyalty to that authority and let their mission take over my own inner voice mm -hmm. and what was important to me. Mm -hmm. And that's something any of us can pay attention to and stop dismissing that voice. Now, I believe that there are times in our lives when we are in situations like we may be in a job that's a really challenging culture and authoritarian, but we may not be able to leave. Sometimes we are trapped like that situationally or circumstantially. Even if you are in that situation, pay attention to how you feel. Don't lose touch with your inner voice because once you do, you are down a path of being indoctrinated that can be very dangerous. Well, that's exactly right. And I think uh, maybe one way I might describe, and I'm curious to your response to this, of what a cult leader or what, you know, these, these people who run these outfits um, are trying to do is, is replace your inner voice with theirs. That's exactly how I see it now. I don't know if they would say that, but the party line, I was thinking the party line 24-7. I wasn't thinking for myself. Exactly. 
exactly. And they and and that's calculated. It's by design. Yeah. And that's the that's the part that you really freak out about. You go, oh my god, that's what this was all about. It, you know, you think you think it's a good thing, and you, and you have this positive emotional experience, and then. <laughs> and, right, and you're thinking you're saving the planet, and you're thinking that I thought they had my best interest at heart. Yeah. And what I have seen them do to other people, to myself, I mean, it's not true. I I know now that in no way is it true. And I, I kept letting myself get abused because I was told that that was good for me. I was, I kept thinking I'm too sensitive. I need to be tougher. Um, I'm, you know, tough love is going to get me to create my own reality and never again will I accept that level of nastiness, cruelty, control ever. Exactly. And it's the cruelty. It's the, it's the overreach. That is the, um, that's the red flag, I guess the most accurate one, at least for me, because it's, it's always a rough calculation to do in my mind it certainly is having lived under you know that kind of authoritarian control and and knowing what it looks like but then also knowing that there are situations and times when we do need some pick-me-up we do need a boost we do need somebody to have our back and push us a little bit because because we're not up to it and we should be and we want to be you know, and there's things we want to accomplish in our lives or things we want to do or goals we want to be motivated to achieve, and yet we can't quite do it ourselves. Yes. So you look outside yourself to try to get some bolstering and some help. And that and it's readily available from so many sources. But then we then we glom on to something like this, and that help, you know, it's really I, I have to steal a phrase from Hubbard a little bit here where it's it's how help becomes betrayal. Yes. You know, and Hubbard actually wrote an issue called that, How Help Becomes Betrayal. And the motherfucker had the gall to write that when that's exactly what he was doing to everybody. I mean, it really is quite gross how blatant they can be in calling themselves out while... Well, they're not called, you know, they're, they, 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 anyway, it's just, it's. That different. happened all the time. They were preaching things and pointing out things that they were doing. Yes. All, all the time and somehow... Um, yes. And of course, the, the, at the highest level, they were not accountable their, to their own standards. Exactly. So they would blame, but we weren't allowed to blame or say anything at all. And I think you're right. Your point is well taken there. I love to grow and I love to even challenge myself and be more honest and look at where did I have a little intention in there that wasn't you know, the kindest or something, I'm all up for that. So that that's, that's exciting. But then when it's abused and manipulated, that that's when it's the betrayal and it becomes that very quickly. Exactly. Much faster than you imagine. It could even happen. I mean, that's, what's so frightening about these things. That's right. That's right. You get caught up. Like I look at it, like I got caught up in a mission. And so now one of the things I do is I'm very fortunate. I have a wonderful uh, private practice now. And one of the things I do is I work with leaders. So I have a a few leaders that I work with and I'm being healthy leaders. And it's so exciting. And 
one of the things that we work on is never putting a mission over other people's humanity. So when you dehumanize people for a mission, it's extremely dangerous. And that's part of the problem because once you're down that path, you're not thinking clearly and it, it can really get bad. And so, yeah, that's another thing I learned. That's awesome. That's mm-hmm. awesome. You know, mm-hmm. I'm reminded of Ira Chalif, uh, who is somebody who in the distant, distant past was uh, a Sea Org member and, and Scientologist. And he kind of doesn't really, you know, play up that very, that part of his life anymore. But he's written about uh, intelligent disobedience and how to be mm-hmm. a good follower. And, and I only, it only comes to mind because you're doing, you know, the leadership half, he's doing the other part and it's, and, and we come out of these groups, these experiences wow. going, my God, what, what just happened to me and how did this happen and why did I let it happen? And, and it's both ends of the spectrum. It's actually, you know, it's, it, it's bad management, bad executing, you know, kind of thing, but it's also being a bad follower too. You know, it's, it's both. And there's, and there's. There's things to know about both of those roles, I, I, only because it came to mind. You know, am I am I mentioning that? But it's uh, interesting. It, it's a great path to go down. I think you're. I think you're 100 on the money with what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I'm very. I'm grateful. Yeah, I'm grateful for the experience. I mean, it it was tough, but I am very happy. I'm not bitter, and I don't. I don't have any resentment about it. I'm all about taking the lessons and empowering people with what I have now. Well, that's awesome. And uh, that's really awesome. And yeah, and it'll it's interesting how this how how uh, recovery works for us. <laughs> right, isn't it? Yeah, right. I'm still pretty new. I got out in November of this year. So I, I guess yeah. it's a journey. That's all I'm gonna yeah. say. It's a journey. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's individual for each person. There is no judgment here. I I, I yes. don't, I'm not like, you know, <laughs> just wait. I'm just yeah, like right. <laughs> That's not my flow at all. It's different, yeah. I'm just saying, you know, because I because I know you know I um I got out. I wanted to start speaking right away, you know, and uh, and and good on you for doing that. It's very very strong of you. What um we've we've spoken in general terms about your path. Now, what I'm what I'm curious about though is, you know, you were in for a long time. So you get in, you do these levels right away, and then you're yeah. kind of part of the system. Could you explain the system a little bit? Because I'm not quite clear. It sounded like you were like a worker bee for the organization, and yet there is no organization, or it's not a formal, you know, kind of not, it's not like a Scientology thing with orgs and missions. And it's, it's an office in Orlando <laughs> that's, that's organizing conferences in hotels, but, but you guys are the worker bees. Is that, did I get that right? Yeah. Yeah. But then there's like, um, in different countries. So there's, um, uh, in China, Australia, Europe, uh, all different areas around the world, Japan, there's, there's, um, satellites and sometimes we all come together and we would all come together and sometimes, um, we would do it separately. So there is an organization, there's a clear head of Avatar, the guy who created it, and then his wife runs all the programs. And then there's trainers who um, are the level, I was at the level right below the trainers. And 
to me, the trainers were the ones where, where I really felt I got a tremendous amount of emotional abuse. And of course, the the one um, the wife who was running it. Um, so yeah, there is there is a very clear system. And then um, so then there was my level where I was working just under the trainers, and so I would train the other masters and work with students. And then there was a level below me and a level below me, a couple of level, like three levels below me, you had to work your way up. And then there were just regular interns who would just teach. And so each level was a, a different commitment of how much time you'd give um, and how early you'd come to the courses. So we were all worker bees. We all paid to be there. Finally, at the highest level, I, I stopped having to pay to be at every course. Yeah. Um, because yeah, but at by that point I was so the last probably 10, 12 years, I was 24-7, not even when I wasn't on course, I was fully devoted to Avatar. So bringing students and then when they leave, I was working with them on the phone to get them to the next level. And I was working with masters to help them recruit their students. I mean, it was all about recruiting. And that's another thing, Chris, is that when you talk about the betrayal, so this course started out with the promise of what I thought was enlightenment and enlightened living. And as soon as you got in the system, it was nothing but recruiting. And I mean nothing but recruiting. And it was, it was like, like the army. You know, like, how many are you bringing? Did you meet your numbers? Why didn't you meet your numbers? What's wrong with you? Go do these drills. Go clean this up. That's what my life was like. It was nothing like enlightenment. But that that was a switch. Enlightenment to recruitment. I get that. I get that. And this is fascinating because it's it's the whole, you know, back room. It's the whole back, back <laughs> of this whole thing. I get a panic when you say that. The back, we would go in the back room and it was frightening. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was sorry. Just, I, sorry. I, was I know. No, no, not in a bad way. Just I, I remember that. Go ahead. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so all this emphasis on recruitment, right? It sounds incredibly similar in a way to the um, the online frenzy of MLM, multi level marketing companies, mm-hmm. which are all about recruitment in order Mm -hmm. to build up a thing. I'm thinking that the economic structure of this is probably incredibly similar, where the only people who are seeing any real money are the couple people at the very, very top. Everybody else is just working their asses off for pennies. Was that your experience? Yes, absolutely. There was so much poverty among the masters. It was was a shame. I mean, and when you say working their butts off for pennies, Actually, they were spending. They were spending. They weren't making pennies because you had to commit to come to the course whether you had students or not. And you had to pay. And then if you're leaving for, you know, let's say, let's call it 10 or 11 days with travel time, right? If you have kids, you have to provide childcare. How can you hold a job? What kind of job? I mean, it's very rare that you can just leave randomly for that long and they totally discouraged doing any work while you were on the course. So it was ridiculous financially. And some of the things that really got to me were that people would come from other countries. 
where the cost of living was so much less. So let's say people coming from Eastern Europe, mm. from Brazil, South America, where they might make $500 a month. Okay. So they would come to these upper level courses or these internships, pay for their flights. And even in the US, I would be taking the payment for people, not for me, for the company, but you know, running their credit cards and welcoming them when they came in. I felt so out of integrity because they'd be crying. They'd be calling family members to borrow money, mortgage things, checks would bounce. They, they sometimes didn't have money to eat. It, it, and, and it was a real mess. And, and nobody seemed to care because they, they were just being told, like the organization didn't care. The, the masters were being told, when you keep improving yourself and own your transgressions, you will get there. Keep owning, keep doing it. And then there's a whole nother thing, Chris, that started, which was so insane. And it's, it's interesting to me that even though I was witnessing all this, I was in such denial of my own feelings and my own perspective that I just went with it. And now I would never allow that kind of treatment of others without saying anything. Right. They started asking masters who were wealthy to loan money. Of course they did. Of to loan money to these people from the other countries right. who couldn't pay. So now when you go to the highest level course, wizards, that's $7,500. Mm -hmm. It's 13 days. It's hotel and airfare. So when you're making $500 a month, nice. you're paying that off, you know, at such a low rate. So these masters also were not getting paid back. Right. And so I myself paid for several students to go as gifts to try to get my numbers in and not get in trouble. So I spent lots of money like that, but not like these masters. I mean, I have a dear friend who left, but he came into some money and it was around a million dollars that he gave in loans. He was young and um, it was really, you know, it was not okay. And it was very difficult to get them back. And he was responsible for trying to get the, the money back. And it's a real mess. You know, I'm going to say that it's, sad to me that this guy who started this whole thing uh, was a Scientologist. It, it's all on Wikipedia, by the way, and I will link to the article uh, for you guys in the show notes here so you can just read it for yourself. The entire history of this guy and how he ripped off Scientology and went to uh, and, and created Avatar, it's all there. Um, it, it's not some opinion I hold. <laughs> it's, it's, it's documented fact. And... Um, Yet he didn't bring any of the financial lessons that Scientology learned over the decades through the hard way, right? School hard knocks. There have been so many financial shenanigans. Every income scheme you can imagine has existed within the world of Scientology, including, wow. including loans. There, was, there were Scientology organizations that created their own credit union in the 1970s. I mean, it was that insane in terms of trying to get money to people so that they would do Scientology. This was all to do Scientology. And yes. of course, that was killed immediately as soon as Hubbard found out about it because you start engaging in credit union activity as a church, 
like, what the hell? Like, what is going on here? Right. Like they could, right. it could have been really bad, really fast for them. And, um, and so they shut all that crap down before it got too public or got too much exposure. And this was already mm-hmm. in the face of the, the seventies FBI raid. But, um, but the point is every bad idea you can have for how to get money to people or arranging loans or setting this stuff up was done in that world. And, um, and then canceled because it was a bad idea because it negatively impacted the organization incredibly and ruined people's lives. I mean, people went bankrupt yeah. right and center because of that crap, you know, because you yeah. are getting these people loaning money to each other. And then you as an organization are arranging those loans. So you're kind of responsible, you know, but then you're kind of claiming you're not. And it just becomes this legal morass. It's yeah, that's interesting. So uh, some of the same mistakes repeated yeah. here in Avatar. Yeah, absolutely. You mean, you know, looking back, any salesperson knows, and you know, I always I have a lot of ideas. I love to bring ideas and creative ideas. And um it was tough because it was considered that I was trying to make people wrong or be superior, you know. So um, there was basic sales 101 is you have to have a pipeline. So, right. So we would talk about in our meetings, a pipeline, right. Having a pipeline, but there was no way you could create a pipeline. And I would say so, because if you're on course, you know, for half your life, and then you're getting back, trying to get back on your feet and you have 10 days to meet people and get back on course and you're, you know, there was no real way to create one. And so there were these types of things that were so basic that made the organization, like made the masters just go bankrupt. And it seems like common sense to me that that we would allow time, but, but what people would say was if you're source, you should be able to create any reality you want. So you don't take into consideration all this. You just keep working on being more source. Yep, exactly. Do not let the mechanics of matter, energy, space, and time impede your forward progress and intention. That's exactly right. Do you know how many times I heard the phrase, why are you adding time? Because Ah. I need time to get a prospect. Adding time. And I'd be writing up my transgressions. I added time. What does that even mean? But I'd be like acting like, oh my God, yes, I did it again. It's ridiculous, right? And then, and then you know, you had masters. I just, I'm remembering all these things. Before I was at this level that I was at, we would go to the hotels and to save money, there would be four of us in a little Lake Mary hotel room, a little Marriott, sharing a double bed, two double beds and one bathroom and bringing a hot pot and all of our stuffs and to try to cook in the, so we could save money, like make our little ramen noodles, you know, and our yogurts in this little fridge. And we would be there for 10 days on top of each other, exhausted, trying to save money. Just the whole structure. It was, didn't make sense. And isn't it amazing in retrospect that you see so clearly how insane that was or how nuts it was that you'd put yourself in that position and all these other people would too. But the yeah. crazier part is none of you, or I'm assuming, I'm like, I'll phrase this as a question. <laughs> Did any of you ever look at each other and go, what the hell are we doing? 
know? Well, as I got further up, I like I said, there was a, a couple of conversations with some very trusted people that yeah. we would have on the sidelines on our walks. And there was a, a dear friend of mine. She left a couple years before me. Um, but there were moments where I got so mistreated that I couldn't stop crying. And there was a time where I really, I wanted to get sick. I was wishing that I would get cancer or something because I just saw no other way out. And she would let me in her hotel room because by that time I had moved to Orlando to be even closer to the courses and take more responsibility and build up Orlando as Avatar Hub, you know? So she, I didn't have a room to go to to cry. So she would let me up. So, you know, and, and be there with me and comfort me. So there, there were these little moments where we go, what are we doing? But even then, what we would say to ourselves is if we handle our stuff and we become cleaned up, that's what they would always call it. Get cleaned up. Yeah. I really thought that the problem was me. And if I got cleaned up, then I'd be in the system and I would look at it differently. And all the ways that I was looking at it was just because it was me, my label. And if I changed, I would see that it was really wonderful and amazing and I would make it work. Totally. That's why I stayed so long. I can only say I totally understand. Totally understand. I joined the Sea Org because I was taking more responsibility, just like you moved to Orlando. Same reason. It was on me. Santa Barbara wasn't succeeding because I wasn't working hard enough. I needed to step up. I needed to go to take the next step. And so, you know, I, I go insane and join the Sea Org and did that for 17 years, right? Where it was 24-7 Scientology. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so I definitely hear what you are saying. And the reasoning was almost word for word what you're saying. And I, and I have to keep highlighting these similarities because I really want to get across to people. It's not L. Ron Hubbard. It's, it's, a, it's a mindset that can be created with words and emotions and, and deeds, right? You, you coerce people. You, you, you flatter them. You indoctrinate them. You lie to them. You do a number of things to people. And you do it in a particular way, and you can get people to believe almost anything. And you can get them to then, because of that belief, do almost anything. It yeah. is so true. And that's why I'm so passionate about helping people. Like, I think some of the reasons, other reasons why we are, let's say, or drawn to something like that is because it does give you a quick paradigm, yep. right? You don't have to walk around. I mean, now, now my view is that life is a mystery and anybody who says they know <laughs> is trying to sell me something, yes, right? Yes. So now I have my perspectives, but my perspectives always change. So it's not that I'm not thoughtful about what this all is about, but we don't know, right? And so, but when you go into a system and some, then all of a sudden that you alleviated, you're relieved because you don't have to, have this mystery and then your purpose is built in and yep. the other thing is i think that people who have trouble making decisions mm -hmm. are drawn to following someone who sounds good 
but then you just need to really follow their decisions and you still feel like you're taking personal responsibility. So getting comfortable with the unknown, learning to make good decisions, like taking that responsibility. Do I trust myself? How do I make decisions? You know, and not looking for a cop out for that and paying attention to your inner voice. All the, all of these are things we can do for any relationship not just cults, like you're saying, it could be work environments, it could be personal relationships, control happens everywhere. And we need to be responsible for ourselves and learning how to recognize it and not not be drawn into it. Nailed it. I could, I could not agree with you more. You know, and it does come down to personal responsibility, but it's not about responsibility is blame. It's not about responsibility as how horrible you are. It's not about responsibility as you deserve to be in the mud. You know, that's not responsibility. That is shame. That is blame. That is gaslighting. That is you are scum. And until you, you know, recognize and acknowledge that we can't make any forward progress. That's bullshit. You know, nobody needs to be talked to or dealt with that way, you know, but we thought we did. It's so amazing, Chris, because I think that what you just said is the shame-based culture. Yeah. I was drawn to that because I always kind of had a tendency toward that, toward perfectionism anyway. So that's the difference. Like you can go into a self-empowerment group or system or any relationship and grow. But if you're locking in to the shame part of it, you become obsessed. Yes, that's right. If you're relating to that from your shame where everything is not good enough and you always have to improve rather than looking at self-empowerment from an evolving perspective, like I just want to evolve. There's nothing wrong with me fundamentally. I don't need to be perfect. Let's just learn. That's an entirely different intention. And I think groups like this look for people who have a certain power, goodness, desire to help, but they're very easily shamed. And that was me. Yep. And that's why I didn't recognize it as a problem. Well, I'll tell you, all of Western society is not recognizing this as a problem right now. Right. So you are not alone. This is a huge problem in our society right now is this tendency and and uh, push to shame people into good behavior uh, or into politically correct behavior, maybe I could say, because yeah. you know shame has uses, embarrassment and uh, ridicule and social ostracization and all of that. These are built-in things. We don't have to think about this stuff. It's 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 in us. Yeah, it can be. But again, like responsibility, you know, you can take it to a place where you're good, where you're at a level where you're like, okay you have a correct estimation of like how much you can and can't do in your life and what, and, and the various forces that are at play, you know, you, you, there are things you don't get to do anything about and you're not responsible for those things. And then there are things you can do something about. There are choices you can make. And those are the things you, you can be held responsible for, but these guys blur those lines. They can completely, completely. Like I, I was, trained to think that I was responsible for everything. I mean, it was so ludicrous and that that was what creating my own reality meant. And so this, this, what you're speaking to is another 
perspective that I have. It's kind of another way of putting what you just said. One thing we can look for is what I call twisting, where you take a concept that sounds good, but they're twisting it. So yeah, you create your own reality. God, who wouldn't want to sign up for that? But that doesn't mean that if I set up, you know, a program and the mic doesn't work, that I had a bad intention that that mic didn't work and I've got to go own that. I had nothing to do with that, you know, but that's the level it was twisted to. And another thing I, I want to uh, just share is one of the things that I think caused me to allow way more than I should have was this idea that you don't want to be a victim, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Who wants to be a victim? I don't want to be a victim, right? Like anybody coming into self-empowerment work doesn't say like, oh yeah, I want to be a victim, right? But <laughs> so, but what they would do is that everything that they did that was not okay, if you said it or spoke up or felt it or tried to make a change or didn't want to go along with it, you had to process that as why are you being a victim? So I got trained not to see what was happening around me clearly. I got trained to see something, right? Let's say somebody is doing something that's clearly off, like some of the things that I expressed. Immediately, I wouldn't acknowledge that. I would go, what am I doing to create this? Right. And it, it was so twisted. And so a lot of these things, they sound good. But if, you, if you're feeling like, wait a minute, hold on, pay attention to that. Because it could be a concept that is twisted. And it may not be completely the way it was meant to be said. Bingo. That's right. Uh, here's how I do it now. Is, um, is I have this little devil's advocate that runs in my head all the time now. And I wish I'd had it running when I was in Scientology. I would have gotten out a hell of a lot faster. But it's, um, it's, and I don't mean to make machine analogies here. Maybe that's a wrong analogy. But basically what I mean is that I am constantly being aware of and questioning the validity of very broad statements. You know, if somebody starts making broad rule-like statements to me, algorithmic statements, you know, this always is this way, you know, or these kind of generalities, you know, if I can, as I start thinking right away, okay, let me see if I can come up with one exception to this. And then if I can come up with one, I'll come up with two and then three and then four. And then suddenly it's not a universal rule anymore. And it's not what the person is claiming it is, right? It might be true. So great. Yes. But it's not true all the time. Yes. And, and Hubbard was full of those, full of them. There are so many of these, of these tropes and rules and ideas in Scientology that, you know, that this is always true. Man always does this. People always do this. And then you go, well, wait a second, you know, this and this and this, they don't. But as a Scientologist, I was never allowed to ask those questions or think that way. And I didn't think that way. I trained myself out of thinking that way because of exactly the mechanism you just described. It's either a failure of responsibility on my part, it's, a fa- it's being a victim, having a victim mentality, and this is, this is word for word out of Scientology. This is how they talk yeah. about it. And, um, and, it's, and it's on me. I'm not being responsible. My, or my ethics are out. I'm out ethics. Right? Yep. Same as out integrity. Similar, you know. 
Um, and it's really interesting how Hubbard will go on a roll about how ethics is a personal thing, and it's the individual choices a person makes about their about what is and isn't survival for their life. So he defines it. This is, and here's just one example of something I wanted to bring up with you now, which is double binds. Yeah. Right. Your ethics is defined as those individual choices a person makes himself. There's one end of the bind, because the mm -hmm. other end of the bind is we as an organization, the Church of Scientology, will be more than happy to judge you and the ethical decisions you have made 24-7. And we will be the ones who will tell you whether your ethics are in or out. And if they're out, you have to start writing your transgressions, confessing your sins, and uh, and towing the party line. So is it my personal decision point or is it your decision point? Well, in writing, it's mine, but in all practical application of this, I'm being dominated and controlled and told when I'm ethical and when I'm not. Absolutely. That's exactly my experience. And the justification for that, and of course, justification is what keeps all this in place, <laughs> is that you're making choices for what we would call the bigger picture, which yeah. was the mission, right? So sacrificing yourself for the mission was considered ethical. Yes. It was actually considered like a, a positive thing, like you were getting what they would call, they literally called it good karma points. I mean, that was a joke, you know, but yeah. it was like, you get good karma points for missing your son's concert to be at the next course. I mean, I'm telling you. And I mean, he was in, my husband went to the hospital one time. He thought he was having a heart attack. It turned out to be something else. I didn't get on the plane. I waited to see if it was necessary. I mean, that's how bad it was. And then also, if I were to have any attention on that, why am I having attention on myself? Get your attention back out on the students. Yeah. I mean, it was it was so intense, really intense. Um, yeah, all of that 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 happened and. Yeah, I, now I forgot I was going to say there was some, some other point about that. But no, it's, <laughs> but what you just said is great because it leads to my next point, which is mm -hmm. um, which is so amazing to me. That the, One of the things that has been really interesting to me talking to you here in the last hour and a half is you have described a Sea Org mentality created outside of the Sea Org. And I find that fascinating because... It's, it's much faster and easier, I believe, to create that mentality in a controlled environment like the Sea Org, where you are mm -hmm. physically as well as mentally isolated. Isolation yep. being one of the three component parts of coercive control, right? The first and most important part is you, they got to isolate you. They got to get you away from people who are going to say things different to you than what they're saying to you. And, um, and yet they can accomplish that here with you and others, these masters and these other people, in the, in, in the real world without having to lock you up or something. Well, that's such an interesting point because there's two things I'll say about that. One is they teach you to imprison yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You don't need the walls. You, you won't leave. 
unless like finally you have an awakening. And um, the other thing is, I think maybe now you just explained why they why they want you at every course because you really are you're in the same hotel maybe once in a while we go to a slightly different one with the same people the same leaders every two weeks and when you're in a hotel you're not in your home you're not around your family you're in you're trapped at that hotel and the hours are so long that in a way you kind of are we call it on site so you're on you were on site pretty much and then when when you got really involved when you were home you were expected to answer your call your phone anytime it rang i mean you really had no excuse to not answer your phone so you were on you were always on no matter what and then you you got i got my call every morning how many am i bringing in that day and then checking in and then meetings so they they created a they created a very similar structure. That makes so much sense to me. It would have to be that way. That makes so much sense. Thank you for for describing all of that because that's that's how it's done. That's that that works perfectly, and it and it's uh, it's educational for me to see that to see how that yeah, works. and which is why I think one of the biggest reasons why I finally left is because when COVID happened. Mm. courses stopped right and i got to be home and i was like oh my gosh i slept a little today <laughs> like there's no i can't bring anybody in right now you know yep. and it was really an amazing feeling now that lasted for me about a month or something and then i spearheaded the effort to get the courses online on zoom which i did and then I started being trapped for nine days on Zoom, sitting there, you know, like, but I was still home. I was still away from, from the inf direct influence. And that got me thinking a lot more. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? You get a little bit of time, a little bit of distance, and your mind starts changing. Yes. You know, yes. and, and in a way, maybe I've never thought about this before, but I think this might be one of those things that we could use to help people as a red flag. You know, if you're in a situation where when you get when you do manage to get away for a little while, mm -hmm. you start wondering, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> What's going on? Maybe I'm in just a little too deep. Maybe something's wrong. You know, if there's little red flags going off in any way at least talk to somebody about it, you know? Yeah. I think that that's a really, really good point. And I have a little bit of advice for the people who love people who are in situations and they're being controlled because people tried to get me out many times. And yeah. what happened to it, uh, it just made things worse because I considered them unenlightened and they were more like the enemy and they didn't understand me and they had no credibility in my mind. So it didn't work. But there was also a couple times where I tried to talk what I call in code mm. to a couple of different people mm. when I really hit rock bottom and they didn't know what to do with it. 
they didn't know they they didn't know how to respond and so they didn't catch they didn't catch the uh what i was trying to say and so if if you care about someone who's caught up in one of these groups can confrontation doesn't work and trying to be right and proving how ridiculous it is it doesn't work so what works and what worked for me is really three things one is genuine connection and care mm-hmm. So believe it or not, when you're in these groups, it appears that we're so connected and working together as a team and working for a cause. I'll tell you, no, it is not that way at all. So I personally have a boyfriend who I live with who is so connected and fun and caring that I started to let that in more and realize, wait, this is really nice. And then gently, he would say something like, do you realize you just spent two weeks working your butt off and you didn't get paid? Is that okay with you? So you can gently explore and ask and try to bring that person to some awareness and whatever they say is is okay. And you can state, you can state little things like, that seems like a lot. Like when he said, you work 15, 16 hours a day and he was shocked, I said, yeah, well, I didn't even get why he made a face, you know? So he he would say, that's that's a lot. I want you to know that's not normal, but he wasn't critical or pushy or anything. And so that was really important. And then the other two things are, sorry, (laughs) is you need to recognize that that person is under the influence of a bully. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're thinking self-empowerment course, we're thinking that person's all whatever. They are under the influence of a bully and getting out from under the influence of a bully is tricky. So you need to have compassion, stay connected, point out little things, let them know that they can talk to you, but really just listen and ask what you can do. Don't be pushing because you don't know what's going to happen to them. Mm. And they will they will work themselves out if they have your genuine care and support. And the third thing is the, the trickiest part to me is realize that those people are playing a game with different rules. So oh, in, in it, right? So an avatar, the rule was if you gave to the mission, your life would work out. So if your finances are hurting. You don't focus on your finances. You focus on getting someone in. Right. Right. That's the rule. So then if you say something that has common sense, like, don't you think you need to work on creating more money? They're going to go, well, you don't know, blah, blah, blah. Right. And it's, you just have to have respect and patience for that. Stay connected, plant your seeds. And, and, and eventually if they're ready and, and one of the, things that did help was I started listening to some amazing audiobooks. Like I heard Stephen Hassan's book, um, The Cult of Trump. I listened to that. And that was safe for me because I thought this is political. And then when he was talking, I recognized, oh my God, this is me, you know? And then when I would talk to um, a couple of people about it, they didn't jump on me. They listened and they let me 
make my exit plan. So that was very, that was what I needed. And that's what worked. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I think, uh, and there's some there's some key principles there. I mean, I totally stealing your last point there because that is brilliant and very, very smart and very, very well put. Um, they are operating off of different rules. You know, they see life very, very differently. And, um, and they might look and sound like they're living in the same world you are, but they are not. You know, I can tell you that from direct personal experience as well as, of course, I'm sure you agree. Um, that's great. And, it, and, it, and, the, and, the, and the points are, you know, compassion, tolerance, empathy, understanding, patience, willingness to listen. I mean, all of these things are so important. And don't try to control them. They're being controlled already. It's not going to work. You can't control them out of, con- out of a controlling environment. That's right. That's exactly right. It's, it's interesting. You try to get across to people. And I think we've been doing a pretty good job of this, both in this episode and, and in general. But it's, it helps to restate it from time to time. And that is that, um, yeah, you're not going to use cultic control methods to get somebody out. But people in cults, people, in a, people who are under an authoritarian belief set, let's say, or in a high control group or under the influence in a relationship under the influence of a malignant narcissist, let's say, same dynamics are at play. What what you have there is a person who has agreed to things or has seen things very, very differently from how you are. To them, it's perfectly logical what they're doing and why. Yes. You just don't understand what their logic is yet. And if you expect to undo that and bring them back out of that, you're going to have to track with their logic at least a little bit. You don't have to agree with it. Exactly. You don't have to agree with it, but to to try to understand it and accept that that's what they're choosing right now. That's right. That's right. Boy. Quite an experience, huh? It, yes, it really, it really was. Yeah, I hear you. What have we not talked about that you want to bring up that I that we might have missed? And anything specific that we might have missed here? Yeah, I I think that um, a couple of things. Yeah, I think that if we're looking at how to support each other and and even raise our children so that they are not susceptible to something like this. I think that invalidation is really rampant in our culture, even in our parenting. And it's not with a bad intention. So for example, the whole concept of positive thinking, it, it drives me crazy because when you... When you are always trying to be positive, you're not being authentic and you're not seeing clearly. And you're, you're taught to suppress anything that is a red flag or a cue that something is off. So you basically start living your life in pretense. You're pretending. And it's very unfulfilling. It's unstable. And then you're very easily influenced. So I think that I just, I encourage people to really listen to each other and validate and validate themselves, their own feelings and each other. Again, not agree with it, but the word I actually use, and and 
I think if I had had this, I wouldn't have stayed in denial so long is acknowledgement. Hmm. So, yeah. So I saw things. I saw the way people were being treated. I saw how bad I felt, but I didn't acknowledge it. Hmm. Acknowledging means to actually admit the reality of something. And so if you take that extra step when you feel something or see something and acknowledge it, and if somebody's sharing their point of view with you, whatever it is in life, take that moment to acknowledge them for having that point of view so they feel heard and they know what it's like to be acknowledged, then they won't be seeking acknowledgement and belonging from all kinds of things outside of them that are not healthy and they won't start that practice of dismissing themselves and uh, getting caught up and influenced by others. Awesome. Such good advice. Thank you. Yeah, there's two more concepts that I think would be valuable to people in their process of getting involved with groups or other people and knowing if it's safe. So one is the concept of stretching. So I was told every day that it's important to stretch out of my comfort zone. And I, I think I'm sure you've heard that. We've all heard that, right? So again, that sounds really good. And yes, that's important. What I learned is that there are two different kinds of pain. There's a kind of pain that comes from stretching where, you know, you might have to learn something and it's nerve wracking and it might be exhausting or there's a certain stretch there and that's healthy. But then there's a kind of pain that is causing damage where you are ruining your finances, you're ruining your relationships, your health, it's completely out of integrity for you. So it would be like if you're jogging and you start to have a pain, if it's an injury and you keep jogging, you're going to do damage. Mm -hmm. If you're building muscle, you keep going. So you need to know the difference. If somebody is inviting you to stretch, make sure you check in with yourself and find out, is this a good stretch or a damaging one? And if it's damaging, you're responsible to say, no, I'm not willing to create damage. Exactly. Exactly. And maybe to extend the exercise analogy just a little bit. Yeah. It really is on you to know, you, the listener out there. Uh, it, it just is because we're all different. And, right. and coaches and trainers and uh, others in that role, whether we're talking about physicality or we're talking about, you know, spiritual gurus, they will push you to the degree they observe or think you can go. But that doesn't mean it's the right degree. You are the one who has to determine that. So that's a great point. It's very subjective. But you know, and you need to know. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Awesome. And what was the other thing you wanted to mention? The final thing um, is that I have been a person that if somebody's offering me something that I find wonderful or interesting, I would allow that person to influence me because I liked what they were offering. And what I realize now is that having something wonderful, whether it's a product or a, anything, is not a criteria for allowing somebody to influence you. So I am now learning to be very discerning about what I allow to influence me, what information's coming to me. It's kind of like what you said, questioning. I'm not walking around 
in fear, but I am very intentional about who I allow to influence me and what I allow to influence me. And that's an important question. Do I want to let this thing influence me or not? That is, that is brilliant. That is, I could not agree more. That's isn't, it. <laughs> isn't it interesting how you come through an experience like this, and I think you've been out long enough to see this, and, and you've clearly been giving this a ton of thought, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, so many people retreat, run away, hide, don't, don't want to deal with it, you know, and, yeah. and, and you're tackling this head on, and that is awesome. Isn't it, isn't it interesting how after an experience like this, after you've seen the wizard pulling the levers behind the curtain, everything's different. People trying to sell me things are so obviously trying to sell me things now, you know? Like, it's just, you just see things very differently. It's so well said. It is so interesting. You, I can see people running manipulation tactics and they don't even know they're running them. Right. And it's so interesting. And I just look at it and I go, oh, well, that was a manipulation. And it, it, it's just, I'm very happy to have the awareness but it's everywhere. And yes, I see everything differently. Like the sense of freedom I have, like that I wake up and my day is my own and nobody's controlling me and I get to cook and I get to relax and play with my dog and read things other than Avatar. I'm learning so much. I'm listening to podcasts. I feel like Life is just so amazing because I'm enjoying every aspect of it. I'm no longer so one-dimensional and so pressured. So yeah, it feels amazing. Yeah, it, it really is. It's it is freedom in a way that these groups only preach about, but now we're actually getting to live it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Ariel, thank you very much for taking the time to come here and and talk about this stuff. And I hope that um, it was it was useful to you. I hope it was useful to everybody watching this out there and that you all have learned something from this and, and can take away, uh, like I said, something useful. I really hope so too. And thank you so much for having me on. It was awesome talking awesome. to you. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> You're <Bye>. very welcome. <laughs> all right, guys. Uh, and with that, um, uh, just feeling the love here. This is pretty cool. Uh, it's been a good, this has been a good chat. And, um, well, if you like the show, if you like the channel, if you like what I'm doing, uh, you know, if you want to see more content like this, and I hope you do, um, then please consider supporting the show because this, this show is fun, is fan funded. It's, uh, you know, the, you, you guys are the one who are enabling me to do this. So, um, Patreon, PayPal, whatever, links are below. And of course, please do like and share this content and get it around because this is only useful to the degree that people find out about it. (laughs) If if we can have the most brilliant podcast interviews in the world and nobody watches them, it doesn't matter. (laughs) So, So let's get it out there, folks. Help me out with that too. All right. With that being said, I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye. Bye.